Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Lee Camp is a man of many talents and varied interests. He is a theology professor at Lipscomb University in Nashville. He is also the executive producer and host of The Token Show, a philosophical and theological variety show. Imagine Prairie Home Companion went to seminary and moved south. Lee's most recent book is Scandalous Witness, a little political manifesto for Christians. Lee Camp, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast today. Thank you, Jonathan. This great is, this is to great. be here with you. I'm in, I'm, uh, in your stomping grounds You are here. in my neck of the woods. That's yes. right. Yes. Yeah. Very pleased to have you here. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, right. Who's, who's the host here? Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> I'm at Lipscomb. Oh, well. Um, so this podcast is going to release um, uh, like the day before your new book releases. Oh, great. Yeah. Yes. Uh, a Scandalous Witness. Yes. What's your subtitle? My uh, subtitle oh. is A Little Political Manifesto for Christians. Okay. Um, and so this manifesto consists of 15 statements 15 propositions 15 propositions that i humbly say can change the nature of christian witness in america okay good <laughs> <laughs> here's hoping it works that's right <laughs> lord knows we need something to work yeah, yeah. right um and you um you say in your introduction these are 15 propositions that shouldn't be controversial yes i do say that um well they're going to be controversial. <laughs> <laughs> which one do you think is going to be controversial? Or which ones do you think might be um, controversial? I think – oh, shoot. What, what, now now you're putting me on the spot. No. I, I, I'm supposed to put you on the spot in this <laughs> format. No, there, when you – well, let's see. Some of the more um, provocative ones, let's say, yes. are um, – I think you say um, – again, there's no reason for this to be – Anybody who, I think anybody who thinks about this would agree, but I think you, uh, one of your propositions: America is not the hope of the world. America is not the hope of the world. Yes, that is one of them. Yeah, um, which true enough. Well, it is true enough from a Christian perspective, sure. uh, from basic Christian orthodoxy. Um, but there is a great deal of. Um, political discourse and rhetoric in American history that presumes to the contrary. Right. All right. So we have um, – one of the things I try to do in the book is um, – well, I, th- I think as um, David Gushy said in one of his endorsements, you know, is, is that I sort of um, kill every, sacred cows on both the left and the right. Mm-hmm. And I, I do try to be an equal opportunity debunker. But you see that especially in the language of hope, right, so that – you have people on both the right and the left who will talk about, uh, literally, you know, this is a quote, I guess, from Jefferson, you know, America is the last great hope of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or Lincoln will say that. Uh, yeah. And, and um, you have Republicans and Democrats who have used that sort of language mm-hmm. to make the claim that if America is going to be saved, it's going to be saved through America. And, um, and they use messianic language saved, or mm-hmm. even with Woodrow Wilson, you know, is very explicit kind of messianic language used about America. Um, and so it ought not be controversial, but mm-hmm. when set in its context, uh, it is, it's highly controversial. Yeah. 
And there's also a, 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 it seems like it feels to me like you're being intentionally provocative mm-hmm. in some of these statements, and you can confirm or deny. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what was the one about um, the way we talk about the Bible and Christian values is is not antithetical? Yeah, but, I think but, I think it's uh, that Christian values, how Christian values and the Bible subvert Christianity. Yeah. Um, that seems like you're asking for trouble. Well, but again, I think it's true, and I yeah. think it's a basic. Uh, it's a matter of basic Christian orthodoxy. You know, when you when you look at say the Creed, mm-hmm. Apostles' Creed, for example, what you're basically getting is the outline of a narrative. Mm-hmm. It's a narrative, right? Yeah. It's not a list of values. It's not a list of moralistic statements. And a lot of people have reduced what it means to be Christian in public to upholding certain moral values or moral commitments. That's not to say that Christianity doesn't entail certain moral commitments, Mm -hmm. but when you reduce it in public to don't do X or we must do Y or we must reject A or we must embrace B, then what you've done is you have subverted Christianity because Christianity is is a story about the way in which the creation and humans in the creation uh, have gone astray mm-hmm. and the way in which God has acted in the world through Christ to, to save the world and to save us and to save the creation, to redeem the creation. And it's a story that points back to a particular way in which God has saved mm-hmm. and the power that God has, has wrought in the world. And so, this, so Christianity is about that narrative and living out of that narrative. It's not about Christian. It's not about Christian values, so-called. Mm-hmm. And and I do think that a lot of times those in the name of trying to save Christianity in American public life, they're actually destroying Christianity because they're reducing it to something that it's not. And so I am kind of being intentionally provocative there, mm-hmm. um, because I think we need to come to terms with the fact that a lot of what goes by the name Christian in public. Is 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 not, and mm-hmm. or or maybe worse is has become its own unwitting, uh, subversive enemy to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about hope. You've already you've already yeah. mentioned hope, um, and I think hope is such an. Uh, I'm now trying to steer things toward writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think hope is is an important idea for a writer. Uh, Flannery O'Connor said, "People who don't have hope don't write novels." And of course, we're not just talking about novels here. Yeah. But but uh, but maybe and don't people, write people, at all. Yeah. People who, people who don't have hope don't write. Yeah. And people who she also says people who don't have hope don't read. Um, hmm. They don't pe- people who, people without hope not only don't write novels, but what is more to the point, they don't read them. They don't mm-hmm. take long looks at anything because they lack the courage. The way to despair is to refuse to have any kind of experience, and the novel, of course, is a way to have experience. That's a brilliant quote. Yeah. So. You talk about hope a lot, and and you've already uh, uh, talked about the false versions of hope that mm-hmm. are offered to us. Yeah. Um, how is hope? How does hope inform your work as a writer? Yeah. Well, I do think that um, hope is central, not merely to the work of writing, but to the work of being human. Mm-hmm. In my mind, um, yeah. of course, there are certain as I understand at least certain forms of Buddhist practice, um, 
at least as I understand it, and I'm no expert in this, but the way I understand some of it is that uh, what it means to be at peace in the world or peace with oneself is to divest oneself of hope right. because it, it carries with it certain expectations. And, um, and even though I will say that meditation, certain forms of meditation uh, have been immensely helpful to me in growing as a person and learning to let go of anxiety – Nonetheless, um, I can't find a way. I've not been able to find a way to go forward in life without having some sort of sense of hope. And because hope sets a horizon for uh, possibility, and and certainly in the Christian story, in the Christian conviction, hope sets a horizon for where human history is headed. And um, hey, can I slow you down a minute? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sets a horizon. That 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 sound. That, I, I know that means something. But I'm not sure what. What do you mean to say sets a horizon? I guess. I guess what I'm trying to say is. I don't know. I just made that up. Oh, I think okay. it sounds kind of good. It, it, but, yes, yeah, it sounds yeah. good. But. Yeah, but what does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess what I mean by it is that, you know, when you uh, where you look to off in the distance, uh, it determines a lot about the way you see yourself in the world. You mm-hmm. know, if I'm always looking down. If I'm always looking at just the crap that's right around me um, or the hardship that's right around me and never look off into to a, a new possibility off on the horizon, mm-hmm. then um, it oftentimes is not a very productive, fruitful, or joyous way yeah. to live. You know? Yeah. And it so, reminds me of in, in, in Paradise Lost, um, uh, before, he, w- before he was a fallen angel, Mammon, uh-huh. Uh, when he was a you know, a pre-fallen angel, um, couldn't enjoy heaven because he kept looking down at the pavement. He couldn't believe that it was, it was gold, huh. and, he, and he, he couldn't look around. And so that's pretty because great. he was so interested in, in the in the bricks that the road was made out of. That is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that same sort of idea, you know, of look, looking off. And so I think that um, for my own work, then as a as a human being, you know, the indispensable nature of of looking off or hope hopefulness. Um, and then I also know that hope in a very practical, pragmatic sense about writing has been important for me in this most recent project because I I grew pretty um, – what's the right word? I grew um, disillusioned maybe mm-hmm. with writing after my second book. Um, this, this one coming out will be my third book. After my second book, I was pretty disillusioned with the whole process of, of publishing. Uh-huh. And you know you can pour yourself into a, a work. You put a lot, a lot of time into it, and then relatively nobody reads it. And it's yeah. just like, well, heck, you know, yeah. why do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, in a very practical sense, uh, I was kind of like, I don't know, I don't know if I'll write another book or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, but I had been kind of working at this project for a while, and. Um, Trevor Thompson at Erdman's uh, came by my office one day and said, hey, we're looking for some projects that look kind of like this, and do you happen to have any interest mm-hmm. in this? And um, I said, well, I do have this one project I've been kind of thinking about. And he said, well, send it to me, and you know, so we were off and running at that uh-huh. point. And then, then pretty quickly we took off. And When would that have been? I think Trevor came to me probably about 20 months ago. Uh-huh. Yeah. And... Um, he was just kicking around Lipscomb campus. He was Talk. on he was on campus for a conference. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
So, um, so that kind of very concrete, you know, somebody sidling, uh, siding up alongside you and, and helping uh, yeah. foster some sort of concrete hope that this particular kind of work can be useful in the world has is been that, important. Yeah, okay. I was about to ask you, is that, the, is that the same kind of hope we're talking about? Yeah, it's, I would say it is, a, it is one specific, it's a very narrow form of hope. Yeah. Um, but, but it certainly correlates with a broader sense of hope as a human being that um, not that we're going to save the world, but that God's going to save the world and that we are called then to the work of sowing seeds of bearing witness to that. Yeah. And that our bearing witness to it, um, that through God's work can, can be used in the world. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in a recent blog post you wrote, you, you talked about uh, the idea of a hermeneutic of love, mm-hmm. which you got you got it from Alan, or you were you were quoting or paraphrasing Alan Jacobs. I don't yeah. know where he got it, but I don't remember either. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about that. I mean, okay. what, what does that even? First of all, what does the word hermeneutic mean? Yeah, so hermeneutic is is how one interprets texts. You know? Okay, um, and typically in in biblical studies, for example, you know, you make a distinction between exegesis and hermeneutics. So an exegesis is the work of working on a text to trying to figure out what it means in its original context and mm-hmm. what are the what are the uh, historical cultural background to make sense of what that text could have meant then. Mm-hmm. And hermeneutics then is the move of trying to interpret the meaning of a text for oneself or one's community in okay. one's own current setting. Yeah. Okay. So a hermeneutic of love kind of points to this notion of when you're trying to interpret one's experience or interpret the nature of another's – put text in quotation marks here – another speech act or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be, um, a, hermeneutic, a hermeneutic of love is this sort of move to try to interpret it lovingly and interpret it uh, through a, a presumption of the possibility of goodwill rather mm-hmm. than some other possible hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. Like, like, for example – um, you know, the hermeneutic of suspicion is, is big in, in certain liberation sorts of movements. Mm-hmm. And a, a hermeneutic of suspicion can be terribly important to do, right? You know, it's, it might be – that might be a kind of classic example of Jesus saying be wise as a serpent might mm-hmm. be a hermeneutic of suspicion. You know, don't be stupid. Don't be naive. Mm-hmm. Know that there's power at play here. So use a hermeneutic of suspicion. So that's important to do at various points. Um, but I, I, especially in our context, I think uh, our contemporary cultural political context, I think of a hermeneutic of love as something, as a choice differ, being differentiated from like we might say a hermeneutic of shame okay, or a hermeneutic, a hermeneutic of um, a judgment um, because I think we just have such polarization going on right now in our context and it's, it's that people don't seem willing – a lot of people often don't seem willing to try to take what another person says and assume the possibility of goodwill there. Yeah. Um, and so I think a hermeneutical love kind of invites us to try to really understand another human being as another human being and not presuppose malice or presuppose that they're just corrupt mm-hmm. um, and try to see what might be there. Okay. So that um, – so a – a hermeneutic hermeneutic of love is about how I interpret what other people are saying um, or writing or whatever. Yeah. What does that mean for a writer who is then putting putting things out in the world? Yeah, I think um, that in 
You know, certainly in in the kind of work I like to do and the kind of writing I like to do is um, I've decided that, you know, I in my academic work, um, I got to do I got to do a PhD at Notre Dame and I got to do a PhD among a lot of really, really smart people. Um, and somewhere along the way, I realized I don't want to spend my life doing high-end, rarefied academic work that mm-hmm. only specialists are going to read. And I say that not to presume that that's not important work. I think it's terribly important work mm-hmm. because especially those who have done that work well, they've helped change changed significant parts of human history by doing that kind mm-hmm. of work. It's really important work. But I didn't think that's what I was good at, mm-hmm. and I didn't think that I could contribute things. No. I didn't think I was smart enough to do that, frankly. And... Um, so what I figured out that I thought I was pretty good at was I can read um, – well, I saw this in teaching as, an un, as a graduate assistant. I, I was a graduate assistant to a, a professor who um, years later I – won't, I won't say what his name, name is, but um, another professor who's also very well known at Duke one day we were walking and – he said, oh, so-and-so, who I was TA for, he said, he's one of the only two people I, kn- I know that has a really big brain. He said, you and I, we're smart, but this so-and-so <laughs> is a big brain kind of guy. All right. And he was a big brain kind of guy. But I realized in being his TA that I could sometimes teach for him, and I could teach his undergrad students better than he could mm-hmm. because he didn't know how to say it in a way that they could make sense of. And so it was like I saw I could kind of translate what the big brain people see. Yeah. I could understand them. I couldn't, I couldn't generate the stuff they generate, right. but I could understand the stuff they, gener- they generate and then try to communicate in a better way. And so I've tried to look at my academic work um, as this sort of bridge work of saying, mm-hmm. how can you engage some of this really high-end stuff and then try to communicate it in a way that's helpful for thoughtful Thoughtful lay people will put quotation marks, you know. Yeah. Um, and so then to, to bring in this kind of notion of hermeneutic of love, it says how can you – how can one say things in a way that truly facilitates the possibility of loving or looking at the world in a different way that makes love possible? Yeah. Um, how to do it sometimes in a provocative way, sometimes in a funny way, uh, sometimes in a snarky way. Um, but always for the possibility of making it possible for people to see things that they might not see otherwise, or to give them more than two options, you know. Yeah, right. Uh, give them a third way to look at something. Yeah, and that can I, I see that as a very loving kind of thing mm-hmm. to try to do in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, in your in your new book, um, I wrote down something that was I found very compelling. You said by choosing to tell different stories to make different observations, to ask different questions, you have immense power to change the nature of political discourse in your community. Mm. That's a very hopeful statement. I, I hope it's true. I hope so, too. Um, but but I, I think it, it, it gets at the, you know, why we even, I mean, we've talked about the idea that you've got to have some hope to write. Mm-hmm. And I, I think if you don't believe something along those lines, um, you know, why why write at all? Yeah. Um, except, I mean, there are also cynical reasons to write. I mean, it's some of the 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 you're talking about telling different stories. I mean, some of the ways we got into this mess is people telling bad stories, right? False stories that right. that were. Um, 
um, that appeal to the people's the people's worst imaginations. Right. You know. Yeah. Um, and um, so anyway, I, I don't know. That's a that's a question. The floor is now open for you to comment on your own. <laughs> I think that was a brilliant line. Whoever wrote that. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> I do. I mean, I do think that um, we shouldn't. We should never fail to take seriously the immense power of storytelling and to seek to tell stories in such a way so that it it breaks open the possibility of new ways of being in the world mm-hmm. and the, you know the possibility of seeing life in a way that we haven't seen before and you know we see all the great novelists do that um, we see the great nonfiction writers do that mm-hmm. um, and it's it's no small matter to learn to tell stories well mm-hmm. to sing stories well mm-hmm. in a way that make it possible to do something different. Yeah. Um, I – the stories, um, they work at they, – they work on us, you know, at, at the level of desire. You know, it, 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 they can change what we want in a way yeah, yeah. A, a little more easily, I think, than, than, you know, sermons, lectures, those kinds of things right. yeah. can do. Um, and – and also, you know, the uh, uh, somewhere I saw you talking about the idea of, of um, seeking first to understand before we seek to be understood. Yeah, which is in some ways is counterintuitive for a writer because it feels like my whole job is to make myself understood. Yeah. Um, but you know, readers are are habitual understanders, right? I mean, you 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 learn what it's you get to try out another way of thinking about the world, another way of right. seeing the world. Yeah. Um, which brings us to this idea again. I, I I got this from your from your most recent blog post. Miroslav Volf. How do you pronounce his last name? Volf. Volf. Yeah. Um, this idea of double vision. Yeah. Being able to see you know in stereo. Yeah. Not not just your own view of things, but um, I mean I, that's such an important role of of reading and writing is yeah. giving people the opportunity to see things uh, with with a double vision. Yeah. But as you say, that's this is different from a fuzzy vision. Right. And it's different from just straight up relativism, right? So yeah. can you talk about that for a minute? Sure. Yeah. Um, so you know, Miroslav is he um, he develops that in his book Exclusion and Embrace, and that um, you know Miroslav's family background and and his own experience is uh, very um, much coming out of uh, the Soviet. Uh, downfall in the 80s and mm-hmm. what happens in the Serbian conflicts and so forth and uh, the horrors of the war there mm-hmm. in Yugoslavia. And uh, so when he talks about trying to practice double vision and see it from the other perspective, he he's not naive as mm-hmm. to how difficult this may be. Uh-huh. And so he's talking about you're, you're actually trying to see the world from the perspective of your enemy. Mm-hmm. It's a very challenging task he sets before us. And, and, he, and he says, you know, he says, the point is not that um, all of a sudden your notion of justice becomes relative. Mm-hmm. And, and you, if you see it from the perspective of the enemy, then all of a sudden your notion of justice goes out the window. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, you may still hold justice firmly, if not more firmly, with your notion of what justice would entail in this situation. But you're trying at least uh, to take on the possibility that you could understand something better or your own vision might be transformed or your own um, life habits and practices and convictions might be deeply challenged in some important way they need to be challenged. Yeah. Um, 
And then out of that practice of double vision of trying to see it from, from the other's perspective and still taking seriously my own perspective, maybe some new possibility might arise for reconciliation or the possibility of some sort of, you know, embrace in a, yeah. in a sort of metaphorical sense. Yeah. Um, and I think, again, you know, that that's a sort of way of um, – that at least stands in parallel with this notion of a hermeneutic of love, where you're you're trying to interpret the things in such a way so that you try to take seriously who the who the other person is. Or you seek first to understand, and then only to be understood. Mm-hmm. Now, from a writing perspective, you know we teach this in elementary. You know, when I as a graduate assistant, I would teach intro to writing courses to mm-hmm. college students. You know, one of the basic writing skills you teach is to anticipate counterarguments. Right. Right. And so it, it's nothing particularly novel from that perspective. In, in mm-hmm. one way, all you're doing is you're seeking to anticipate counterarguments. But it does require a s- sort of existential move where you, um, you know, I've heard this quoted from a lot of people now, but I think where I first read it was from Woodrow Wilson, who in my mind said a lot of crazy things uh, <laughs> as a Christian. Um, but one of the things he said that I liked was, um, he said, if you, if you don't know in the back of your mind somewhere that you might be wrong, then you're a fool. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and I think you know, I think that's right. You know, so yeah. I really need to hold on to the possibility um, that I really may be wrong about my most cherished assumptions. Mm-hmm. And so the one theologian like William McClendon, uh, uh, Jim McClendon, uh, speaks of the principle of fallibility being at the root of doing good theological practice. Huh. You know, if you you're always he says you test everything. And you're always testing it in light of new experiences and new data and in light of the tradition that you've received in the scriptures and tradition you've ex- received in the Christian tradition. Test everything, holding on to a principle of fallibility. Yeah. And so it's just this sort of uh, way to be in the world um, that um, it's, it feels risky. Feels It does require, you know, going back to the quote from Flannery O'Connor, it requires a lot of courage to be this attentive to something. Yeah. Um, but it seems to be a more true way to live. It seems like yeah, the the, the kind of single vision uh, that assumes I'm I can't be wrong. The only the only way I cannot be wrong is if I'm the one who's who is originates the truth. Yeah, and and it seems to me that the double vision that Miroslav Volf is talking about um, is less relative than than a vision that says yeah. I mean it's 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 so it's so hard to um, distinguish between. Um, my sense of justice and my sense of what I want for myself. Yeah, right. And and it seems to me that I was just thinking as, as you were as you were describing Wolf's position, it sounds to me like what we're saying is there's a truth that's outside of that originated outside my head, also outside my enemy's head. Right. And by trying to see things from my enemy's perspective. That's that's a you know we I'm triangulating on the, the this truth that neither one of us made up right which feels to me less relative than my saying I can't possibly consider the possibility yeah. that I'm wrong yeah yeah I, you know I um I grew up um you know George Marsden a church historian mm-hmm. pointed us to the ways in which uh, fundamentalism and American evangelicalism was the flip side of the mod- of the modernists you know mm-hmm. and, and Marsden made the argument that um, fundamentalism is just one flip side of the modernist coin, you know, mm-hmm. it, and and so Protestant liberalism and and uh, Protestant fundamentalism are just the heads and tails of the coin of modernism mm-hmm. in American culture. 
And so I grew up. Kind Can you of say like, one more sentence about that? Yeah. So so that for both of them, both the liberals and the fundamentalists, the criteria or criterion for truth was based upon some sort of uh, modern enlightenment yeah. notions of truth. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up on the kind of fundamentalist side of yeah. that coin and with very strong notions about objectivity and rationality mm-hmm. and strong suspicions of subjectivity. Yeah. Um, and and I would quickly want to nuance this and say, um, you know, I can do lectures on this, but you know, I'm not. I'm not suggesting we jump into a sort of celebration of uh, mere subjectivity and right. you know, cultural relativism and so forth, because none of those people really believe what they say anyway. Right. You know? <laughs> they just don't. <laughs> yeah. um, but but you know, I discovered when I was a, a young, my wife and I were living in Nairobi for half a year, and we were working at this uh, school in a in a slum in Nairobi. And one day we were coming home uh, to where we were staying at these missionaries' home, and we were stopped in traffic. And um, I looked over to my left, and I saw this guy walking down the sidewalk, and he was just buck naked. He didn't have a stitch of clothes on, <laughs> except he had socks and dress shoes on. Okay. And, and his clothes were t- in a bundle underneath his arm. Right. He was walking down, just free to the wind, down the sidewalk. And so I did this double take, and I, I, I asked the, the man driving the car, William, who had become a friend. I said, William, what's up with this dude? And he looks back, and he's very nonplussed, you know, and he just says, oh, you know. He said, he's mad. And I said, I said, what? And he said, he's mad. He's crazy. And he did the fingers around yeah. his ear. You know, he's crazy. And and so I was just so confused by that because he knew that that meant this guy's mentally ill. Yeah. And so that night at dinner, I asked the missionaries, I said, so William said, and they said, yeah, that's, that's how people show mental illness here is they walk around naked. And sure enough, <laughs> we saw this other guy uh, who had very distinctive biology that I should not describe on a, a, you know, a family-friendly podcast. Um, but he, sure enough, he, we saw him several times walking through the neighborhood buck naked. Yeah. Um, and so it just struck me as incredible that um, we cannot escape the cultural – norms yeah. of even mental illness. You yeah. know, even when you're being the least, quote, rational, yeah. even your cultural context determines the way that gets made manifest. Yeah. And so it forced me to take seriously what, what some call the social location or the, the social manner of our knowing, you know, or social epistemology, that any of our knowing is always socially located. Mm-hmm. Any of our claims to know is always socially located. And so Subjectivity and objectivity always are inseparable from each other. There's some mm-hmm. sort of truth that's outside of me. There's a reality outside of me. But anything I say about it is always mediated through me and or through my cultural context. It's inescapable. Yeah. And that fact itself ought to engender a certain humility, I think, in us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the more Has we it worked c- on you? Uh, I, I think so. Yeah. I, I, I want to believe so. Yeah. Um, um, but you know, I mean, the temptation to pride is always a perennial human temptation. But I want to believe it's yeah. helped me. Yeah. Um. All right. Last question: Who are the writers who make you want to write? I uh, see. I knew you were going to ask me that question. Yeah. I don't like that question because I, I don't think of myself as a particularly literate person the way you are a literate person. Um. That being said, though, I mean, I'll, you know, I can point to the, some of the people that have moved me 
Um, they moved you to go sit down and write something? Uh, no, I can't point to anyone who's moved me to sit down and write. What makes you sit down and write? Um, joy and mm-hmm. hope. Mm-hmm. Sometimes anger. Is there any writer who engenders joy and hope in you? Yeah, I mean, one of the ones I had thought of knowing that you were going to ask that question was, um, you know, I think of somebody like Thomas Merton. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, some of Merton's stuff I've gone back and reread uh, yeah. numerous times. Or or somebody, another person that I've reread numerous times, um, Will Campbell's. A memoir, Brother to a Dragonfly. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I've read that four times. Really, I have that book. And I just haven't read have it. Have you yet. not? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've read it. I think four times, and I think I've cried every time I've read it. Um, and I got to know Will Campbell, which was very dear to me. Mm. Um, he lived in Hohenwald, is that right? No, he lived out Mount Juliet. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, but being a Southerner, and um, I, I could just relate to so much of the stories he yeah. told and how he told those stories and. Uh, the brokenness and the beauty of Southern culture, you know, yeah. just moved me. Um, I do like, you know, I've read, I haven't read her more than once. I've read two of Marilyn Robinson's, of her trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and those those are kind of like the Flannery O'Connor quote. You know, you have to be prepared to go slow because yeah. she wrote it. The, the pace of the books are very yeah. slow. Yeah, incredibly slow. But they're so beautiful yeah. once you give yourself to them. That, those seem like books that would, that would mean a lot to you. Yeah. I mean, from what I know of you, that feels like something. Yeah, there, there's a sort of pace to it that's beautiful. Or I think, you know, Wendell Berry's um, – um, oh, Wendell Berry. Uh, not, uh, not Jaber Crow. Jaber Crow, yeah. yeah. It's another one that yeah. I found beautiful and moving and, and the like. Do you – Wendell Berry, do you prefer his uh, his fiction or his essays or his poetry? Well, I've, I've, uh, I have liked all of them. Yeah. Um, I have had my students read quite a few years his book of essays on sex, economy, community, and yeah. freedom. Yeah. And then I, I I've read, read that. three great. of his novels, I guess. Yeah. And I've read um, – and I've memorized – uh, some of a good, not a good number, maybe three of his poems. Mm-hmm. Long, I, I, I did memorize. I can't recite it all now, and you wouldn't want me to. But uh, the Mad Farmer Liberation yeah. Manifesto, you know, that's yeah. a, just a fantastic yeah. poem that uh, yeah. is one that is worth getting in your brain and chewing on again and again and again. Yeah, I think I could have guessed several of your writers that you mm-hmm. would have, just from from knowing you. So, yeah. all right, Lee. Well, thank you. It's, it's been, been great to be here. And yeah. I, I uh, hope good things happen with this book. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I do, I, uh, I'm hopeful about it and would love for everybody to go out and buy a copy. Scandalous right. Witness. Scandalous Witness. A Little Political Manifesto for Christians. All right. Thanks great. very much for having me. Yeah, let's do this again soon. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. 
More importantly, the Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Thank you.